Getting the exposure to grow your small wedding business can be difficult. With millions of engaged couples using The Knot to plan their weddings and find vendors, advertising on our sites will connect you with more couples than anywhere else online. Meet engaged couples where they're already searching for vendors like you. And let us deliver leads to help you grow your business. Visit vendors.thenot.com slash podcast to sign up today. Mention code PODCAST15 during your free onboarding session for 15% off your first month. Is this still the most astounding relief season in Blue Jays history? I don't think there's even a contender. And I stood on the mound, and he put down a pitch I didn't want to throw, and I shook him off, and he kind of looked at me like, are you kidding me? We're winning, <laughs> we're winning like 3 nothing. or I, I was like... <laughs> I used to tell him, man, I, 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 I used to tell him, I'd win every game if I had your stuff. I said, why don't you try to take my stuff out there and win? And welcome to episode number 172 of Artificial Turf Wars. Insert tagline into this space. I'm your host, Greg Wazuski. <laughs> I am joined by Joshua Awesome. Josh, how's the lockdown? Insert answer into this space. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's fine. You know, I mean, taking it day by day. It's a little, little uh, athlete cliche there. But no, it's, it's, it's not so bad for me, thankfully, so far. How about you? I'm doing all right. Uh, I continue to get out and about as an essential worker, and my wife and daughter continue to uh, precede the entire garden in our kitchen. Um, so we'll we'll see how how high it has grown with plants by the time they actually get to take this stuff outside. Ah, the other grass is growing wildly in Major League fields, and so we must still delve back into Blue Jays history in order to. Uh, come up with a topic. So topic we came up with this week was uh, great seasons on not great teams. And uh, we did have a lot of not great teams to pick from, didn't we? Sure did. So we, we kind of skipped over some of the more recent uh, obvious standout seasons on not so great teams because A, we think most of you remember them. And, and B, we, we talk a lot about Jose Bautista and Edwin Encarnacion. And we figured uh, among the hundreds of players who have played for the Blue Jays, some of the others deserve a, a, a mention here, a little little attention. Seems fair, doesn't it? It does, yeah. So like there are five people that we're leaving out of here. You mentioned Bautista and Encarnacion and then Delgado. Roy Halliday, Dave Steeb. We've got a lot of podcasts to do before baseball comes back. Something tells me we'll get to those guys in a little bit more detail. <laughs> yeah, there'll be something about Dave Steeb other than everyone must have hated him, which was our conclusion the last time we talked about him. Media, media, not media. We were seeing players. Just no, media. no, no, no. Sorry, everyone who voted on things—that's who hated yeah. Dave Steeb. Okay, so uh, we're going to go way back for our first season. That I mean, this was not a horrible season in. in in any context, but, in, uh, sorry, it was not a horrible season out of context. 86 and 76 sounds like an okay year, but this was the year 1986 following a 99 win team that won its division. And there were two standout players on that team that we thought might deserve a little recognition. One of them was Jesse Barfield. Tell us how Jesse, uh, rounded out his performance in 1986. Yeah, I mean, so Barfield had been 
you know, with the club for a few years. He was obviously one of the key players in the 1985 squad that went to the postseason. But he really broke out in a big way in 86. He set a career high in home runs with 40. Previous high was 28. In RBI with 108. Previous high was 84. He hit 289, 368 on base, 559 slugging. He basically did everything you could ask a middle-of-the-order slugger to do. Yeah, and I mean, as part of the best young outfield in baseball, he was the best player in the best young outfield in baseball in 1986. Because this is obviously pre-George Bell MVP season. Um, so I, I think a, a lot, he must have turned a lot of heads at that point. Yeah, I mean, for some reason, there's this weird thing that happened in 1985 where he batted eighth more than any other spot in the lineup. I don't think he was ever batting eighth again after doing this. <laughs> I would hope not. I mean, Cito Gaston had some weird quirks with with certain batters and and uh, locations in the batting pre, order. But eighth, pre Cito, pre Cito, that was still Bobby Cox. It was Bobby Cox, yeah. Okay, Bobby, Bobby. Cox in '85, and then Jimmy Williams after that. Explain yourself, Bobby. Um, <laughs> Bobby's not going to explain himself. All right, the other standout was on the pitching side in 1986. Which is this still the most? astounding relief season in Blue Jays history? I don't think there's even a contender. So Mark Eichhorn just... I, I don't even know how he got this role, but he managed 157 innings pitched as a reliever. No starts. <laughs> this there were Also, this is not like... There was no opener... Nobody was experimenting with that in 1986 where someone would throw an inning and then Icorn would come in for five. Yeah, that definitely. And he was a rookie. I mean, this wasn't this wasn't some, you know, guy who'd been doing this forever. Like Goose Gossage is always throwing a bunch of innings and what have you. No, no, no. This was a rookie going out there and throwing nearly enough to qualify for the ERA title out of the bullpen. Yeah, basically an inning per game. Like, what was it? Everyday Eddie Guardado was the nickname that got thrown around. But Mike, Mark Eichhorn literally could have thrown every day. Yeah, he was. it was just something else. I mean, his first outing as a rookie was three and two-thirds innings out of relief in, the, in a loss. But then after that, he was, you know, coming into the eighth and the seventh and the sixth of games they were winning. It took one outing for him to earn that kind of trust. So end of the year as a reliever he got 14 wins against six losses which is just weird with a 172 era yeah and it's it's too bad because in 1984 so this was 86 they the Cy Young went to a reliever and then in 1987 it went to a reliever but in 1986 there was this guy named Roger Clemens who had a monster season so it did not go to Mark Eichhorn. Well, and those relievers had saves, which, how many saves did Eichhorn end up with? Ten. Which, so he wasn't the closer. He just literally was the answer every time Bobby Cox looked at the lineup, or the, the bullpen card and said, uh, just give me Eichhorn. <laughs> yep. Wild. So, uh, yeah, that fourth place finish at 86 and 76, quite the downfall, but not rookie Mark Eichhorn or Jesse Barfield's fault. There's there's nothing more I don't think those guys could have put on the field at that point. By the way, you know what's crazy? Eichhorn did not win Rookie of the Year. 
Who was the rookie of the year? He didn't even finish second. Jose Canseco won it. He hit 33 home runs, 117 RBI, 15 steals. But, you know, he had a 318 on base and a 457 slugging. And Wally Joyner was second, who hit 290. Icorn far and away should have won this one. Yeah, I don't think people understood how hard it was to get someone to do Icorn's job at that point. Like, that, counting stats were king in 1986. There, there were no... You know, there were no awards for ERA titles. Saves were, yeah, it's just weird uh, to look back on it. We should mention something, too. Like, back in this era, over a strikeout per inning doing this, which is, that was like the top relievers did that as closers. To do that as a relief pitcher who threw 157 innings, 166 strikeouts, which is a magical season. He never came close to matching it. Who could? <laughs> I was going to say, no one blames him, though. <laughs> no one wanted Mark Eichhorn. You know, you better do that again next year. <laughs> like, I don't think that ever entered the conversation. He did throw 127 innings out of the pen the following year. Uh, wild. Um, so, yeah, that's Mike, Mark Eichhorn 1.0. For those of you who saw him in the World Series years, it's uh, it's a little different. Ah, okay, so we move on, actually, post-World Series, because the Blue Jays were good from essentially 1987 to 1993, so we don't have any bad seasons to talk about. Imagine that. Yeah. Yeah. It was, a, it was a nice time. <laughs> it, was, it was good. It was a good thing. Like, I mean, and we were all mad that they weren't winning the World Series or going somewhere in the playoffs, but it beats the heck out of what we're about to have to uh, dredge through for some good performances. Paul Molitor. How old was Paul Molitor in 1994? I forgot to look. 37, I believe. 37-year-old Paul Molitor hit 341, 410, 518. But you're going to give me probably his most remarkable statistic, and it is a counting stat. It is. Paul Molitor, during that season, stole 20 bases without being caught. (laughs) Work smarter, not harder. It was, uh, yeah, it's one of only four players in history to do that. And he did it at age 37. <laughs> the next oldest is was 30. Uh, yeah, that's a wild, wild accomplishment. And I mean, with a 410 on base, I guess he had a lot of chances to pick his spot. Yeah. I mean, he, he certainly did. He And it, this was actually in the middle of a long streak of 36 consecutive stolen bases. Here's a fun, goofy little fact. So 1990, because 1995, he stole 12 without being caught. Mm-hmm. In 1996, he went to the Twins, and his first stolen base attempt, he was caught by Greg Zahn. <laughs> uh, everything ties back to, well, the Blue Jays, one way or another. So yeah, Paul Molitor, uh, I don't think he would have necessarily got MVP consideration, but the strike in 1994, certainly uh, the team finished... 74 and 88 in fourth. So he could have stolen all the bases and they weren't going anywhere. Was that fourth yeah. in 94? I feel like. You, I, was it, so no. you're trying to check the, the record? Sorry, no, no. 50, I was like, no, that's 55 wrong. And 60. 55 and 60, third. Yeah. 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 Still not, not going anywhere fast. That was the Expos year anyway. That's what I'm told. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, you want me to to move us? (laughs) You want me to move us on to our next actual pair of performances? 
Yeah, let's do it. So these are not chronologically tied together, but they do have a lot in common. Um, they are both relievers. Uh, they are both uh, guys on... Wow. They are both uh, guys who did not close. Um, and there are both names that uh, I think most Blue Jay fans will remember. Paul Quantrill in 1997 and Scott Downs in 2008. Yeah, I mean... Some of these numbers that these guys are putting up were just ridiculous. So Paul Quantrill, in yeah, 1997, he threw 88 innings in relief, had a 1.94 ERA. Now, 1.94 out of a bullpen guy, that happens with, you know, not frequency, but it happens now. This was the height of the steroid era. It was a 2.34 ERA plus. Like, for comparison... It's about the same as Giles, and, and Giles' ERA was, you know, a tenth of a run lower. So, like, the, this was an elite, elite relief season, and in 88 innings. Yeah, like, he, he was a workhorse and unbelievably excellent. Uh, and for all of his trouble, the team was dead last at 76 and 86. Yeah. <sighs> and then the Downs one was in 2008. He threw 70 innings, but again, 1.78 ERA, 238 ERA plus, so 138% better than league average. And, you know, Downs was sort of, the year before, for some reason, he was used as a loogie, even though he was awesome. And then in, in 2008, the Jays kind of figured out that he was just really, really good, and they should just let him pitch as much as they could. I remember that, in 2008, he kept inching closer and closer to the closer's role um, without ever ending up for very long as the closer. Uh, because B.J. Ryan was good that year again. Yeah, and he didn't, and, and Downs didn't throw hard. He was devastating, and he left-handed. Um, so they kind of wanted to, I think, keep him for uh, more situational usage. But yeah, I, I remember uh, also Scott Downs, if, if you really needed him to, he would go three days in a row. Yeah. And then, you know, we were talking about you know, the, the bad teams, right? This team was okay, 86 and 76, but, but they finished fourth. <laughs> and they, they were never in contention. And they, so Downs was part of a, a unit that led the league in bullpen ERA. The starters also led the league in ERA. They led the majors in ERA and bullpen ERA, and they finished fourth. Yes, because the, the 2007 and 2008 Blue Jays had a problem hitting. Yeah, and the division was just so hard, too. So it's like... These, you know, this you, is peak Tampa Bay Rays, right? Yeah, this is when Tampa broke out and won, and won the division. And, you know, that's unfortunate for the Blue Jays. That You know, it's like it wasn't the way it was supposed to go, but you know, it happened. So Tampa won 97, Boston won 95, and the Yankees won 89. So the 86 when Blue Jays weren't even within two games of third place. So you alluded to not the way things were supposed to go. I think our next group of, of players, maybe we should talk about that. Um, and then we'll, we'll get to the 30-30 uh, guys in a minute. But 2006, Blue Jays loaded up on free agents, right? And trades, yeah. And trades. So they ended up with a lineup that included Vernon Wells and Troy Gloss. And they had in the bullpen the crown jewel closer, B.J. Ryan. Yeah, and, you know, as you mentioned, two of those guys were acquisitions and you know, brought brought in that offseason, Gloss in the trade, Ryan is a free agent, and they had monster seasons. Yeah. You know, go ahead. Yeah, so uh, I know I paused there, threw off the rhythm whole thing. My bad. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, 
you know, so you think if that happens, you bring in two guys and they're great. You know, and AJ Burnett, you know, he was good but hurt, and then Overbay was great, and you think this team's going to do it. They did not do it. <laughs> now, to be fair to them, they went eighty-seven and seventy-five. They didn't face plant, and they even finished second, which. The Blue Jays in this era, like that 10-year span, second was like the pinnacle of 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 all of their accomplishments. But yeah, yeah, I mean the AL East when the Yankees were so good in this stretch. And everybody else was fairly close together, which resulted in in as you put it, the meat grinder scenario wherein um second did not get you the wild card just because you were in the AL East because you only had 87 wins. Yep. But yeah, so we should talk about these seasons. Who do yes. you want to do first? Uh, let's do BJ Ryan because it it's probably the best single season by a guy who only had a, one great <laughs> season in a Blue Jay uniform. Well, he had a good season in 2008, so it's not It's It wasn't not great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's pretty good. It just wasn't this good. Was our... <laughs> so Ryan, the year before this, Ryan had actually led the the Orioles in strikeouts as their closer. He had 100 strikeouts in 70 innings. Or sorry, two years before that, he led led, led their team in strikeouts. But um, you know, like he was an ace reliever coming in. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't a sec- a secret, but no one could have expected what he did with the Jays. 1.37 ERA. 10.7k per nine before everybody went strikeout crazy like has happened over the last five years and 38 saves yeah 5.2 hits per nine like it was just ridiculous and so i made a joke on twitter because someone did one of these polls is like what was the best reliever season for a blue jay as a closer and it was bj ryan like how is it not and i was saying like if you're a righty you saw a cutter away cut her away, slide her at your feet, and then you were going back to the dugout. And if you're a lefty, you may as well not have come up. <laughs> <laughs> Lefties had a 287 OPS against B.J. Ryan that year. It, it, you pretty much, like, that's not an exaggeration. 287 OPS is not worth getting up to the plate for. You could, no. you could hurt yourself and <laughs> not get on base. Yeah, 167 on base and a 120 slugging. He did not give up an extra base hit to a lefty all year. Yeah, so thanks for giving it your all that one year, BJ. <laughs> uh, well, and he had, the, like you said, he had the help on the offense, though. Troy Gloss hit 38 home runs. And Vernon um, Wells hit 32. That's 70 home runs between, right? Yeah, and then you know you combine that they got overbay, like, but those two guys, you know, they're on base which were both over three fifty five, or one of them was three fifty five. So and they were playing good defense at third and in center, and it was just like, okay, like how did this team not do better? And the answer was just the ALEs, unfortunately. So unbelievably, the team <laughs> with all those performances was in third. Stuck in third from May 2nd until September 24th when when they made their big push into second to finish 11 games back. Just ridiculous. <laughs> like an entire year treading water in the middle of the division. It's just wild. Yep. Okay, let's talk 30-30 because uh, we don't like counting stats, but 30-30 is fun, isn't it? It is fun. Because uh, 
yeah, it's it's hard work to be a 30-30 guy. So the Blue Jays had two in their history. One was Sean Green, who was uh, 35 home runs, 35 steals. And then uh, that was 1998, and he managed that on a team that was 88-74. and 74. Where'd they finish? Third. <laughs> that was the, the, the very fake 88. I mean, they were sellers. And then they just went on this crazy run in September and won 11 games in a row or something like that. But so like, it's like best season they've had since, since the postseason. This was obviously before 19, 2015, but it really wasn't. But for Sean Green, it was. Yeah. 278, 334, 510 slugging. Pretty respectable. Yeah, he's only, only one of 20 players ever to go 35-35. Nice. I bet you Barry Bonds is on that list. Yes, he's a 40-40 man. So wild. Uh, and then Jose Cruz Jr. had actually a pretty close season to that. The line, 274, 326, 530. 34 home runs, 32 steals. So not not quite as good. Uh, and the team was also not quite as good, who finished 80 and 82 and were third of five in the division. I see a pattern for it. <laughs> yeah, it was, a, it was a rough stretch from 1994 <laughs> to 2014. Um, yeah, I mean, Cruz was, he he was sort of, like, this was his breakout. He came over in 1997, and there was the tantalizing power, but he kept getting hurt, and it just wasn't working out, and then, the year before that, he had 31 homers, and this year, 34 homers and 32 steals. And then, you know, next season he got hurt again. <laughs> <Just> like, <laughs> yeah, you know, for that bright shining moment, he was a superstar. And by the way, so we didn't mention Sean Green's other season just because you know we only have so many so much time to do this without boring you to tears. But he did set the se- the team record in runs the year after his 30-30 season. So he had a couple of fantastic years for those bad teams. Yes, uh, the fate did not care about Sean Green's desire to to be good in Toronto. Um, I I hope he felt better by the time he got to L.A. It was L.A. Right? wasn't it? It was yes. Okay, so our last terrible twosome is one I I actually remember watching with great interest, and I'm not sure why this team held my attention for so long, um, but it does have some some weird statistics to go with it. It was Adam Lind and Aaron Hill. Uh, Adam Lind hit 305, 375, 62 with 35 homers and 114 runs batted in. Aaron Hill matched him. I remember them, they, they pretty much matched one another home run for home run the whole season. 286, 330, 499 with 36 home runs, one more, and 108 RBI. That was before they figured out that Adam Lind couldn't hit lefties? Is that what happened? <laughs> Well, maybe Adam Lynn hadn't figured out that yet either. <laughs> he had a great season. Yeah. And from then on, it was like anytime someone came at him from the other side of the plate, uh, he was, or from the same side of the plate, I should say, he was toast. Uh, yeah. So uh, this was a, a thing that, you know, Cito Gaston had taken over the team in 2008. And at that point, Adam Lind had had a bit of a resurgence and hit really well to the end of the year. And then in 2009, he had this monster season. It's like, oh, Adam Lind, he's going to be a superstar. And then he was just, you know, a really good platoon bat. And, you know, it's unfortunate because it seemed like he had everything to be a monster. No, it's incredibly fortunate because if he hadn't been a platoon bat, he wouldn't have been traded to the Milwaukee Brewers for who? Marco Estrada. (laughs) (laughs) 
So I would like to remind you of the entirety of the starting rotation over the course of the season for that 2019. So the good news is it does not contain 13 guys like the 2012 and 2013 teams, but it was Roy Halladay, Ricky Romero, Scott Richmond, Brian Tallett, Brett Cecil, Mark Sipchinski. Team finished 75 and 87 fourth out of five in the division. Yeah, and what's really sad about this too, I mean, this was the end of Roy Halladay, right? Because this team, they had a couple of great years. They had Roy Halladay being Roy Halladay, and they were terrible again. So he just decided it was done. Like he was tired of losing, and, you know, that sucks because you know, they, there were some pieces. And then the 2010 team, you know, they won 85 games. So it's too bad. Yeah, and they didn't do it with any. They didn't win those eighty-five games with any pieces that came back from the Holiday deal, as we discussed. Was it last week? Was last week trades or was it the week before? No, two weeks. Two, two weeks, weeks ago. So the other fun fact, haha, that isn't fun at all, is this team that finished seventy-five and eighty-seven was was in fact twenty-seven and nineteen on May twenty-third. At which point, some people must have placed their bets on on them doing well throughout. They went to lose nine in a row on an. Oh, and nine road trip, the worst road trip the team had had up to that point. Yeah, that will that that will hurt you. Yeah, twenty seven and fourteen on May eighteenth. Um, we did a, a one of those Twitter rewatches before you know, which have been going on for people trying to kill time, like we've been doing with this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> hey, <laughs> well, no, providing people ways to kill time. There um, we are. And the holiday start on Burnett's return was in there and the announcers, one of whom was Jamie Campbell were talking about, you know, whether the Jays were serious contenders and you know, cause they were 23 and 12. <laughs> Oof, that went away fast. <laughs> I think, I think their hearts got broken on that 0 nine road trip, Boston, Atlanta, and I think Baltimore, and they couldn't even yeah. win a game in Baltimore. Baltimore was not good at that point. And the last one they lost was a walk off too. So it's just, just bad. And just a curb stomp. So there you go. That is a brief but uh, comprehensive somehow tour of times when a Blue Jay had a lovely successful season and couldn't help his team over the hump. Now, we have one more season to discuss in depth, but we, we're not really... A, well, yes. We're not really authorities on these seasons, so we thought we should get an authority to talk about those seasons. That seems reasonable, doesn't it? Yeah. So how about we go and get, I don't know, the guy who pitched the Cy Young season for the losing team in 1996 and talk to him about 96 and 97. Sounds good. All right. We're going to come back with Pat Henkin. We'll be right back after this. What a sword's best story. What a sword's just a ride. ride. Just right. uh, and Artificial Turf Wars is honored to be uh, joined by former Blue Jay Pat Hentken uh, for this very special episode. Uh, Pat, welcome to Artificial Turf Wars. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. How you doing? We're doing all right. We're doing all right. Um, so we, we talked to you about this. We're going to go way back, all the way back to uh, the early part of your, your pitching career. Um, which included, of course, the success as, as a member of both the 92 and 93 World Series teams. Uh, and then you had the strike in 1994, which I'm sure was was a, uh, very disruptive, you know, and, and, and created a lot of uncertainty in the baseball world. So things should have gotten back to normal in 1995. 
but they didn't. The Blue Jays uh, had an unexpectedly bad year. So uh, coming out of 1995, um, I don't know if you had the year you wanted to have that year necessarily, but what did you think about you know the, the, the result that the team had in 1995 and, and maybe what were your thoughts as to why it hadn't worked out? You know, I think I think our defense struggled a little bit. I'm not sure when Devon White and Roberto Alomar left the club. Was it before 95 or after? Because that was a, you know, nothing against the guys that took their place. You're just looking at two, one Hall of Fame and the other one Gold Glove, um, both Gold Glove, actually. And, you know, when we lost that core defense up the middle at such a high level, I thought that that's when the Jays defensively started to slip a little bit. Um I'm not sure, though. They may have both been there in 95. The year didn't go very well for me. I remember uh, starting out the year rough and just never really hit my stride. Uh, We struck August 12th in 94, and the season got shut down, came into spring training. That was the year of the lockout, and there was uh, replacement players being uh, in uniform on the fields at the time. And I remember we were in a high school field down near Sunnyden, Florida, playing with just guys that were on the 40-man roster that weren't going to um, cross the line, I guess, for lack of a better word. And, um, you know, that season, I just never really found my groove. I don't know. It was just not a really good year for me and not a really good year for the team. Well, definitely yeah. difficult circumstances, you know, when, when you're kind of robbed of, of spring training. So um, so going into 1996, obviously you had some sort of a, a plan and, and it was more of a regular rhythm. Um and also, um, Charlie O'Brien joined the team. And I've, I've read some things from you in the past where you gave a lot of credit to O'Brien for um, for changing your approach. So what were what were some of the things that you looked at in, in 1996 going into the season? You know, it's funny. I remember coming to spring training, just, you know, David Cohn gave me some great advice when I played with him in 92. He said, when things are going bad, always just try to go back to the basics. And I know it sounds simple, and you've heard coaches tell you this over and over again, but when it comes from a guy of his status at the time, uh, just hit home. So I remember in 95, I, I finished the year, wasn't a good year, coming to spring training in 96, and I just kept saying to myself, you know, you got to get back to the basics. And what I mean by that is just basic fundamental fundamentals when it comes to pitching. I mean, it's like get ahead, be aggressive, locate your fastball, you know, throw your breaking ball occasionally behind an account to keep guys honest. Um, but again, trust your stuff and, and just try to locate one pitch at a time. Just all the basic stuff that you're taught as a pitcher in the professional level. Every coach I ever had always preached all those things, but somehow, some way, just the light came on. And in 96, I was able to, um, you know, just get into that sweet spot when the season started. Wasn't a great first half. Matter of fact, I didn't make the all-star team in 96 and I made it in 94 set and I made it in what? 93, 94 and 97, but I didn't make it in 96. And when I look back on it, it was a good first half. It wasn't a great first half. And I just, um, I ended up um, just getting on a roll in the second half is really what it, what, what happened. Uh, As far as Charlie O'Brien goes, he came over from the Braves and Maddox was my favorite player. So I right away just kind of joined Charlie at the hip in spring training and we shagged together and I kept asking him all kinds of questions about Maddox and Glavin and Smoltz. And, you know, they were leading the way in the national league year after year. And Charlie caught me my first game in, in Toronto. I'll never forget this. It was against the angels. And I remember I went all the way to the seventh inning before I shook him off and I stood on the mound and he put down a pitch. I didn't want to throw 
And I shook him off and he kind of looked at me like, are you kidding me? We're winning, we're winning like three nothing. Or I, I was like two nothing. He looked at me like, are you serious? You're going to shake me off right now? And I didn't shake. I, no, I, I shook him off. I threw the pitch. The guy hit a bullet up the middle. And then I remember thinking, man, I'm not going to shake him off anymore. And I, and I went a long stretch without shaking him off. But Charlie was excellent at um, knowing when to light the fire, knowing when, when you needed confidence. He was like a psychologist. He, he also was uh, tough love. And some guys had trouble with that. He would hit you straight with it. You know, hey, your stuff's not very good today. We're going to have to really locate her. Or, hey, man, your stuff's electric. Let's be more aggressive today. You know, he was very, very honest and, and um, held you accountable. And I think as a pitcher, he opened up the down and away to me. Because for the first, like, let's see, 91 through 95, I pretty much pitched most of the guys the same way. I threw balls up and in to the righties, and I threw my breaking ball, tried to throw it down and away. And my ball had a little natural cut away from the righty. So he says, why do you throw in so much? The ball has a tendency to cut, you know, middle in, and that's when, the, that's when you get hurt. He said, let's try to go away, and when, next thing you know, I'm in the seventh inning. So Charlie opened the door to the outside corner for me, and it really benefited me at that time. Now, that pitcher-catcher relationship is just so important. And something with, that people don't really get to understand from the outside, so it's always great to hear about that kind of thing. But I want to go back to something you mentioned a second ago about how you didn't make the All-Star team, which – Neither did the MVP of the league that year, by the way, which is kind of funny. But the Cy Young Award were in the MVP. Neither of them made the All-Star team. But in looking at it from a modern lens where, you know, like you were sixth in the league in ERA and first in the league in innings pitched, did, were you surprised at all that you weren't an All-Star, even though you weren't having maybe as great a first half as you thought you might have? I was first in innings in 96 at the All-Star break and sixth in ERA. In the yep. AL, I yeah. didn't even know that. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> oh, okay, I didn't know that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, that's a good first half. Um, that, that's, that's what I try to do is pitch innings. I love, I love trying to beat my staff in innings pitched. I always thought that was a part of our job. I think I learned that from Dave Steve, and I learned that from Jack Morris and Dave Stewart and some of the great pitchers I was able to play with. Um, you know, I, I, I look back on it. I, I, can't, you know, I didn't think I deserved to make the All-Star team at the time. You know, maybe with the new stats, I would have slipped in there this, you know, in today's game, you know, it's a lot different back then. They only took five starters and like four closers, you know, for the all-star game back then. So it wasn't like it is today where they take, I think like 13 or 15 pitchers now. So the, the, the chance of making the all-star team back then was a little bit tougher. It was just tougher because they just didn't take as many guys, quite frankly. Yeah. Well, either way, it obviously it it worked out well going after that. You you also I don't know if you're aware of this one as well. Just another stat at you that you threw at, at one point in August, I believe it was, you threw five consecutive complete games, and no American League pitcher yep. since the since the wild card era has ever done that, other than you. Wow, no, I didn't know that either. That's pretty cool. Even Roy Halladay? Nope. I thought I thought maybe Doc did. He you got know what? to four. Again, that was the. Uh, Oh, did he? Okay, yeah. So, so um, Cito, he liked his starters, for one. And I, I wasn't a big strikeout pitcher, so I didn't strike out a lot of guys. I didn't go to deep counts. I tried to, you know, my pitch count, really, when you look back, if we went back and looked at the box scores, I probably very rarely threw over 120 pitches. Um, occasionally, I might get over that threshold to finish a game. But, you know, you get in a run like that, and, and um, you know, you're getting quick outs. You're locating the ball. You're throwing the ball down on the way to the righty, and it's got that little cut, and they're right on it, and they they hit it off the end. Just to, you know, the barrel's only three four inches wide, so you can just get them to miss the barrel. The ball doesn't go anywhere. Even big league guys have trouble hitting it to the outfielder if they don't hit on the barrel. So, 
if you can just get them to miss hit it a little bit. And I think that's really what led to the complete games was the ability to throw strikes, the mindset, um, the work habits, the catcher, the defense, and the manager. The manager allowed me to do that because he could have went to the pen. He could have went to the relievers in the seventh or eighth inning. He chose to stay with me, and I, and I, I thank him for that. So you're, you know, in the groove for obviously those five starts, but for most of the second half, like you said, um, what's the feeling like though when the rest of the team can't, you know, you're winning games and, and you're, you're, you're racking up W's, but the rest of the team can't quite seem to put it together enough to make a run at anything. Is, is that kind of a weird feeling? Um, you know, or, or, or is there a bit of frustration that you can't help more than once every five days? Well, baseball is the ultimate depth game. I mean, you have to have depth to win at the major league level. It's what makes winning your division so hard and, and, and it's so challenging is that you have to have, you know, not just five good starting pitchers because usually one or two get hurt. You, you end up having to have eight or nine at minimum. And then, you know, it takes a whole bullpen and it takes good defense. It's not easy to win 20 games because it's such a team stat. And, you know, I, I think the bullpen that year did a pretty good job for me. I can't remember how many times I left with the lead and didn't get a win, but I know it I know it definitely happens every year. And, um, you know, you just, just get in a – I just kind of got in that sweet spot as an athlete. You just get in that sweet spot, and, and it, it just felt like you were – instead of pitching every fifth day, I felt like I was pitching like every third day because the days were flying by. And as far as the team when I wasn't pitching, yeah, it was tough. I mean, we – you know, I think – I mean, Carpenter and, and Halliday weren't quite there yet. They were they were still coming up in the minor leagues, I think, if I'm, if I'm correct. Um, they weren't quite the established pros that they became. And, um, you know, shoot, it, it's just part of the game, you guys. I, I think that uh, you, know, you go out there trying to win every game. You know, I, I know that when you're confident, you're laying in bed the night before a start and you're facing the Orioles and you're going, okay, Brady Anderson – you know, then you're going through the line, you're going out, 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 out. And then when you're, when you're not doing well and you're facing the Orioles, you're going, oh, my gosh, this guy kills me. This guy rakes. He runs. This guy's going to steal. He's going to, you know. So it's it definitely a mindset helps you for sure to achieve those goals. And I think that anytime you talk to a guy that had success at that level, their mindset and their mental toughness is, is above most of the people you see and play against or even work with. Like, to give you an example, I'm in AAA with – with the Blue Jays now coaching and helping some of the players in AAA. And I, I try to explain to them that the, the biggest difference between the guys in Toronto and the guys in Buffalo, a lot of it's your mindset, you know, and then, and, and you try to help them with that mindset. So that's, that's, you know, you have no control over what happens the other four days. So I just tried to control the day that I pitched and then try to be a good teammate, be a good teammate in between. So speaking of, you know, mindset things and, the depth and not being able to control that. What was it like then after that season? So you've just won the Cy Young Award. Your teammate Guzman actually led the league in ERA. And then all of a sudden, Roger Clemens is coming in. Does that make it feel like, okay, we're going to make a big jump forward? Um, you know what? Yeah, it was incredible. Matter of fact, I love Guzzi. He was one of my favorite teammates. And uh, still to this day, when we run into each other, I, I always give him a big hug. Really good teammate. I, I actually always tease him. I'm like, man, you won the year eight title, and I had like 95 more innings than you. <laughs> I remember teasing him about that. Because I think he had like 160 innings, and I had 260 innings. And we, I remember teasing him about that. But that's the type of teammate he was. That's the type of friend he was. You could do that, and there was no blood, no foul, and no hard feelings. We go in the offseason, and we get Clemens. And it's like, holy moly. I mean, Doozy and I were on the staff, and then we added Roger. And it was just like, man, oh, man, you know, Roger Clemens, the Rockets going to come to Toronto. This is incredible. So we were feeling very good, very confident. 
Um, getting a chance to play with them was really two of the coolest years that I played. Uh, other than the World Series years, um, playing with Clemens and learning from him and picking his brain and being his throne partner, it was it was a great experience for me. Uh, I actually have a question too. So obviously you're coming off the Cy Young and Clemens came in and he, you know, hit the ground running, had a fantastic season. You obviously did as well. I was wondering if there's some sort of even like internal competition because it was like he'd throw a complete game and you'd go out and throw in the next day or the other way around. I think you were first in the rotation, but and it just throughout the season, it seemed like it went that way. You each threw nine complete games. You each threw three shutouts, exactly the same number of innings. Even I'm just wondering if it's sort of like, you know, I'm going to try to beat you the next day aspect to it. Well, you know what, to be honest, um, self-evaluating is, I, I always felt was one of my strengths and I never really tried to hang with him because I used to tease him that his changeup was my fastball. <laughs> I used to tell him, man, I, 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 I used to tell him I'd win every game. If I had your stuff, I said, why don't you try to take my stuff out there and win? And we'd <laughs> laugh, you know, cause we were throwing partners and, um, you know, he, you know, he was just the, the next level from, from pretty much anyone I ever played with, including Steve and, and Morris. And I love those guys. They were great influences on me. But Roger's talent, his ability to put the horse blinders on, his mental toughness, his work habits, his fastball command was just elite. And, you know, he's throwing 94-95 with pinpoint control and a 90-mile-an-hour changeup or split finger, whatever you want to call it. Um, you really couldn't try – you really didn't You really didn't want to try to set those goals because they really weren't attainable. You know, he's punching out 10, 14 guys a game. You know, it was just the next level. So it was. I, I, I may have pushed him. Because he didn't have a guy like me that was pitching a lot of innings with his staff from the year before, if I'm correct. So I think if you asked him, I probably pushed him. But as far as him pushing me, I I, I just don't feel like I was ever threatened like that because he was just so much better. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like I didn't really try to, I didn't try to set that goal to try to stick up and stay with him. I just tried to pitch my game. I knew my strengths and it was a different way of attacking hitters. So I couldn't attack hitters the way he attacked hitters and he and he could probably attack hitters the way I did because he was so talented, but he just had two overpowering weapons with 10 point control. So it was very hard to compete with him. But as far as the competitiveness goes, absolutely. I mean, we threw together every day. He was awesome as far as like helping me, like my mindset and, you know, being ready to pitch in the first inning, don't wait till you get in trouble and then lock it in. It's too late. You know, just all kinds of cool one-liners that he had taught me. Um, get ahead, get out of the middle was a big line that he used. And I still use those same lines with the players today in Toronto. So it's been, it's been, he was a good influence for sure. Um, so having had that team success and, and then another period where you, uh, you know, you, you did finish uh, poorly in the league, putting all that together and, and now you've, you've coached at different levels at different times. Um, what do you think you, you draw on out of those experiences to try and help players? What, what sticks with you the most is something that you try and pass on to players to help them, um, you know, when, when their team is, is not performing the same way they are to stick with our theme here. Right. Um, I think the biggest thing is that just to control the controllables, you know, work out, work out hard, be prepared, know yourself, know your teammates, know the guys you play against and be prepared and trust that process. And, and when you go to pitch on your fifth day, you're the man, you're the king of the hill. That's the attitude you have to take. You can be the most humble person on the other four days, but on that fifth day, you need to be a little bit cocky, but don't show anybody up. Obviously be professional, always represent the club in a great way, but inside you have that inner confidence, that inner burn 
that is going to motivate you to excel. So when you play for a team that's out of it, which I played for many, where you're out of the you're out of the pennant race by mid-August. I mean, you're not mathematically out, but you're pretty much out. Right. Those are tough. Those are that's a tough month to pitch in the big leagues when you when you know your team is out of it. Now your team's starting to play guys from Triple A because they want to get a good look at them and see where they're going to be for the next season. So you may not have the cast of players and the run support and the big league experience behind you when you pitch. So those, those outings that last month, last four to six weeks, those can be tough outings because it's hard when you're out of it. It's not as easy. You have to find ways to self-motivate. You have to find ways to have certain individual goals without showing up any of your teammates or any of your fans or any of the organization in any way. So those are, those are actually pretty hard months. I mean, I pitched in pennant races and I pitched in when you're out of it. And I would rather be in a pennant race because your intensity is there and it should be there every time because you're professional and it is, don't get me wrong, but there is an extra little edge about the way guys play when they're in it. And, right. I, and, and does that make sense? Yeah, I think sure. you don't you don't have to think about why you need to crank it up um, when you're in a pennant race. It's obvious. Whereas when you're doing it for your yourself and, and trying to focus and be professional, well, you have to think about why you're going out there at 100%. Yeah, I mean, every time you take the ball, you're going 100%. You're professional. You're doing it everything you can to win the game. I always felt like no matter what team they put behind me, if I pitched and did my job, we're going to be in the game and have a chance to win. No matter what lineup they threw out there behind me, no matter what defensive alignment I had, if I did my job and kept us in it and didn't have a big inning, you know, we have a chance to win the game. That that was kind of my mindset when you play for a team that's that's out of it. It's it's um, it's not as easy as that people think, especially when you start playing for a while and you have you know a few years under your belt and you've been to the promised land like I was, as lucky as I was to be part of two World Series teams. You have a tendency to I don't want to say get lackadaisical but you have a tendency to not be as mentally tough. And those are the exercises you have to learn how to convince yourself you're the king of the hill on that day. Well, you, uh, you lasted a long time in the big league, so you obviously figured out a way to do that, 100%. It has been an absolute treat to have you along um, and, uh, and to hear some of the, the funny things that, uh, that you would say to your teammates and that they would say back to you, as well as, as some real insight. So um, we appreciate your time. Um, you know, uh, I, I can't thank you enough, and, uh, and I hope all goes well from here on out. All right, well, thanks a lot, guys. Good luck and stay safe, my friends. Thank you, you, sir. And there you have it from the man himself, uh, how one navigates through a Cy Young season and, and some other seasons when things might not be going all that well around you. That was amazing. Yeah, it was. And it was funny him saying that he couldn't compete with Clemens. He matched him, complete games, innings, and shutouts. So maybe Pat selling himself a bit short. Obviously, Henkin had the incredible ERA and strikeouts, but 1997 was still an incredible year for Pat Henkin. Yeah. I mean, like I said to him, you know, he, he lasted in the big leagues because of his ability to, to make it work, even, uh, you know, to know what his game was and to play it. So it was, uh, it was a great time having him on and uh, pretty funny about Charlie O'Brien, too. <laughs> All right. Well, we're not going to ignore you, folks. We're going to give you your questions. Time now to hear from our listeners. That just seems silly. Here are the rules. First I ask a question, then you ask a question. Now, how does that sound, sweetheart? Could you repeat the question, please? Sure. 
We're going to repeat the question. Uh, L at Ellie Ellie Hart has our first question, which is which teams would be the biggest winners and losers of having no 2020 season? Hmm. So the biggest loser, I think, has to be the Dodgers because they would lose Mookie Betts without having gotten a game out of him. Which is kind of a wild thing to think about. Uh, yeah. Who? Winners would probably be, be, I don't know, like the Red Sox maybe for the same reason <laughs> that they you know got those assets from Mookie Betts. But you know, Chris Sale gets to recover from his Tommy John. I think that teams like that had a lot of injuries. So, you know, maybe the Yankees, even though they were supposed to be so good anyway, they have, they were going to be missing like four guys. So basically the teams that are going to be really good if 2020 skipped are the ones that we hate the most because they were going to be really good anyway. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Uh, okay. The Mets are kind of losers in this too. I mean, they get Syndergaard back from Tommy John maybe, but Stroman just going to become a free agent. It's going to be so strange, man. Yep. That's the thing about guaranteed contracts. You never quite know how that's going to happen. I'm sure there's yep. insurance somewhere, but that does not win games. Insurance policies don't win games. They do not. And I don't think insurance would cover this right now. The players aren't getting paid. They would just, <laughs> they just, their contracts just end. How guaranteed is a guaranteed contract? Well, this was agreed to by the, between uh, MLB and the, and the players association that if there is no season, you know the players won't get paid for it, but they'll their service time will advance a year. Seems like an interesting arrangement to come to, but I guess yep. if you don't want to bankrupt your league, hmm. yeah. I mean, they get the the players got a bunch of money as an initial sti- initial stipend, so they're probably going to get more at some point. But uh, but yeah, it's a it's an interesting compromise. All right, question number two, Andrew Arnold. What are the top five baseball movies we should all be watching in the absence of Blue Jays baseball? And, of course, he has excluded the 1992 World Series VHS video, possibly because he's worn it out. I've already watched it a couple times. Oh, my God. Because <laughs> on YouTube, so. How do you rewatch game highlights over and over again? Like, the whole reason I watch sports is because I don't know how it's going to turn out. I don't know. I'm... I just do. Anyway, the answer to this is Major League five times. <laughs> well, we got to give the people a little bit of love. You can watch right. Major League five times and also watch four other movies. So, well, let's go back and forth. Major League, obviously, and Major League two will count as two of them. Now we got three more. Um, Bull Durham, I think, is worth a watch. Absolutely. Yeah, a bit overrated as a baseball movie, but well, well, well it's a great movie. We'll accept it. Uh, I think Moneyball, even with all its flaws, is still a fantastic movie. Uh, Mr. Baseball. Ooh, good one. Because it's um, genuinely about baseball. Like, there's some baseball in it, not just... Yeah, anyway. Um, another one's, you know, like, A League of Their Own is a great movie. And if you do watch for, for Love of the Game and you just skip all of the relationship stuff, the baseball scenes are awesome, and they have been scully. And and then it's only, what, an hour and a half long? It's not even. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bad movie with great baseball in it. It's the only movie that's longer than a excruciatingly long baseball game, or feels that way, anyway. Oh, my goodness. Okay. So there you are. There's some some tries. Do not... Uh, what what should they not watch? Rookie of the Year? Should we avoid that? Um, yeah. Rookie of the Year. Eh, it has its moments. And, but it makes no know. sense. Like, no, nothing, it really doesn't. Nothing in that movie makes any sense baseball-wise. So I'm going gonna, I'm um, gonna to vote for no Rookie of the Year. What one do you, you think they should avoid? 
So you and Ross would kill me if I didn't say Trouble with the Curve? Because <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the worst baseball movies ever. In terms just... of it don't make no sense baseball-wise, oh, yes, absolutely. My goodness, no. Yeah, so there, <laughs> there's the two. Don't, wa- don't watch those ones. All right. Um, you know what? I, I need to ask you for a final thought. That's what we need to do at this point. Yeah, man, we're out of questions. Just two this week. That's okay. And again, just before I get to this, you know, people want to send us in topics for what we're going to do. Like, you know, this this week was obviously the, uh, you know, the the look back, given, shining a spotlight on some seasons that, uh, you know, otherwise hide a bit in the shadows. But um, so send us topics and we'll be happy to get to them. But uh, so my final thought, one season we didn't mention, uh, and not Juan Guzman's ERA leading league, because Pat Henkin got to mention that. <laughs> <laughs> Give him a little subtle, subtle jab for the innings pitch. No. So 1998, we mentioned that Sean Green went 30-30. Jose Canseco almost went 30-30. He had 46 home runs and 29 steals. But what's the reason I want to make this my final thought and why we didn't say it earlier was because of how hilarious it was him trying to also be 30-30. He had 28 steals on August 20th, and then he was caught five times out of six the rest of the way. And he just kept trying to run in the most ridiculous scenarios, just trying so hard about this to get the stat because that was all that mattered back then. And I think that, yeah, it feels like a lot of times Jose Canseco was chasing a number, not anything else. It seems to be like a theme for his, his career. So it fits perfectly, doesn't it? And and he didn't make it, which made it all the funnier. It's like, you were doing all this stuff. You were trying so hard to get it to the detriment of the team at times. And he didn't make it. Oh man, that that might be the most Jose Canseco thing ever is to end up one short of what you wanted. He of the forty nine home runs. <laughs> ah, all right. So first of all, big thanks to Pat Henkin. Now, uh, the Twitter handle is what I'm about to plug for him, and I realized that at p Henkin. That is correct. All right, I didn't get the confirmation via via text. So yes, at p Henkin. Follow Pat on Twitter, uh, or you can follow him where he is uh, apparently coaching in AAA for the Blue Jays, as he had mentioned. Uh, we give much thanks to him uh, at this uh, these crazy times for coming on and and uh, and reminiscing with us about one of the best pitching seasons in Blue Jays history. Which is to say, uh, you were Josh Housem at Joshua Housem, and I was Greg Wisniewski at Coolhead2010. And this was Artificial Tour Force episode number 172. And we'll talk at you again next week.